This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Smoke sifts through the trees. A spring breeze whips across the forest blowing the gray air into Inspector Jean-Michel Lauzon's face. He coughs as he follows the acrid scent into the thicket. He pulls aside a branch to see a flaming BMW. Inside, there's a man with a hole in his head. The authorities determine carbon monoxide poisoning from the smoke killed him. They insist the hole, which resembles a gunshot wound, is not from a gun. It's from a pressurized explosion brought out by the fire's heat. Officially, this discovery is deemed the gruesome, unusual suicide of an unsatisfied 54-year-old Frenchman. But he isn't just any middle-aged Frenchman. He's a paparazzo who made millions photographing Princess Diana in the weeks before she died. He claimed his images of the crash that killed Diana were explosive. He was questioned in connection to her death, and three years later, on May 4th, 2000, he turned up mysteriously dead. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Last week, we covered the official story of how Diana died, as well as some context. This week, we talk about the unofficial stories, including MI6, medical sabotage, and the mysterious death of a photojournalist. 
Officially, Princess Diana died from injuries caused by an accidental car crash. In the early hours of August 31, 1997, the car carrying Diana, her lover Dodi Fayed, and bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones hit the 13th pillar of the Pont de l'Alma tunnel in Paris. The crash was officially blamed on the car's driver, Henri Paul, who was legally intoxicated at the time. Henri and Dodi died on sight. Diana died about four hours later, and Trevor survived with horrible injuries. But there are a lot of conspiracy theories about the death of Princess Diana, Dodi Fayed, and their driver, Henri Paul. Shortly after their deaths, thousands of stories floated around claiming that it was the result of foul play, and about 35,000 conspiracy websites popped up. And this was in 1997, when most of the internet was still dial-up. Yet, even before Facebook, Twitter, or going viral, these theories prevailed. And in 1997, the majority of the public believed that Diana's death could not have been a mere accident. The blame fell on all kinds of groups, not just MI6, but everything from the CIA to the committee to the Mossad, Saddam Hussein, an ISIS precursor, the Freemasons, and even the Irish IRA. People may not have been able to agree who killed Diana, but most agreed that someone killed her. All of these theories put intense scrutiny on the French investigation into the crash. This initial inquiry lasted two years. Finally, on September 3rd, 1999, the French authorities concluded that Diana's death was accidental. But that didn't kill the theories. Sure, some people were content with what gave the picture of a thorough investigation, but others weren't. Most notably, Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father. Even after the official verdict, Mohammed and his team would not let it go. So from 2004 to 2008, the Metropolitan Police, a.k.a. Scotland Yard, reinvestigated Diana's death, naming the case Operation Paget. Every conspiracy theory proposed by Al-Fayed was scrutinized in this official inquiry, headed up by Lord Stevens. They examined 175 iterations of the same idea because many of the suspicious elements had multiple explanations, all put forward by Al-Fayed. And Mohammed Al-Fayed wasn't going to discount any possible version of what he knew to be the truth, that his son was murdered. This week, we're going to examine some of the most viable theories. But first, let's look at it from a big-picture perspective. As of 2017, car crashes kill approximately 1.3 million people per year worldwide. Why don't people believe a car crash killed Princess Diana? Most people didn't know Diana personally, but for years, they were watching her. It didn't feel like someone's real life. It felt like a movie. Like how we all accidentally keep up with the Kardashians, even if we don't watch the show? Yes, there was just as much drama. Diana was an extraordinary, beloved icon with an extremely exciting life. For years, everyone thought she'd eventually be the Queen of England. After everything we covered last week, would you really expect her to die because she didn't buckle up her seatbelt? No, that's a disappointing ending. Exactly. Our basic instincts scream that such an incredible person should have an incredible ending. And that's why it's challenging for people to believe in the official version of her death. 
Everyone wants to see a satisfying resolution to her story, and it's easiest to believe that Diana's complicated life story came to a complicated conclusion. Human psychology plays a part in these theories, but suspicious details play a bigger part. Even if Diana hadn't been world famous, some of the details surrounding her death would raise eyebrows. Diana was extremely paranoid, which means either she was struggling with her mental health or she knew something we didn't. Or both. Fear for her life might have contributed to the bulimia and depression she admitted to struggling with. What we do know is that Diana was, at times, worried for her own life. Regardless of the cause, we have to consider her experience valid. A prime example is the 1996 letter to her butler we read last week, quote, My husband is planning an accident in my car, brake failure, and serious head injury in order to make the path clear for him to marry Tiggy. Tiggy Legbork was William and Harry's nanny. She was hired in 1993, shortly after Charles and Diana formally separated. During this time, she became a surrogate mother to the boys when they were in Charles' care, referring to them as my babies and criticizing Diana's parenting. In 1997, William asked both of his parents not to come to the Parents' Day 4th of June celebrations at Eton, but instead brought Tiggy. I can see why Diana would feel insecure about Tiggy. That's another woman mothering her children. Tensions were at the ultimate high between them in 1997. Diana once made Tiggy burst into tears by accusing her of miscarrying Charles' baby. And Tiggy even temporarily left her job. A miscarriage? Did Tiggy have a relationship with Charles? In Diana's head, she did. However, there was never any confirmed relationship between Charles and Tiggy, other than employer-employee. Tiggy later admitted she once had a crush on the prince, but it was just that. Tiggy left the royal family service to get married in 1999. There's no evidence she was ever involved with Charles. That's fair. Though that letter is eerie, I'd chalk up the Tiggy mention to Diana's paranoia. And if we believe that about the Tiggy portion, we can easily believe that about the whole letter. Or we could believe that Diana only had some of the facts when she wrote the letter that she knew she might die in a manufactured car accident, but was so distracted by the role Tiggy was playing in her son's lives that she could come up with no other motivation for the plot. That's not impossible. But we can both agree that Charles didn't rig Diana's car crash to make way for Tiggy. To make way for Tiggy, no. In pursuit of something else? Well, the other circumstances are too suspicious to discount yet. Diana had angered some very powerful people, from the Queen of England to the arms industry. On top of that, Diana had eschewed professional protection as member of the royal family. Yes, even after the divorce, she was still considered a member of the family, so she didn't have any bodyguard acting purely in her favor. When she died, she was under the protection of Trevor Reese Jones, Fayad's British bodyguard, and Henri Paul, head of security at the Ritz, but neither of them were working for Diana. There wasn't a bodyguard solely protecting her. And we can't ignore the fact that she died in a tunnel. It's dark, it's secluded, and it's simply easier to get away with murder in a tunnel than on an open street. And most importantly, there were no cameras in this particular tunnel at this particular time. Exactly. There was a traffic camera that photographed all cars entering the tunnel and documented their speeds in an attempt to crack down on speeding and prevent accidents. However, this camera 
turned off after 11 p.m. each evening, so we don't have the photo of the Mercedes entering the tunnel, nor do we have any other security camera footage. The Paget Report, the 871-page document produced by Operation Paget... 871 pages. <laughs> no wonder conspiracy theorists go wild over this. Yeah, it is very thorough. As I was saying... Chapter 5 of the Paget Report details that as many as 14 cameras were positioned along the 2.5-kilometer route between the Ritz and the tunnel, but they were all private security cameras, and apparently none of them had recorded any usable images of the Mercedes carrying Diana. In short, there's no publicly available video or photos of the minutes leading up to the crash, or the crash itself. We only have photos of the aftermath, the smashed car in the tunnel. And as far as proof goes, there's a gaping hole. And then there's Diana's warning to her contacts in the press to prepare for a big announcement on August 31st. Her death left everyone hanging. What was this announcement? Was the accident manufactured to scare Diana into following a gag order and never intended to result in her death? Or did someone determine the only way to guarantee her silence was to kill her? And if she was murdered, who did it? Let's look at some major theories and see which one, if any, best holds up. Throughout this portion of the podcast, I'll be presenting the details of each theory, and Molly will be providing the factual context and comparisons to the official story. We'll both poke holes in each theory, and then we'll determine if there's enough evidence for the theory to be believable. Okay, theory number one. Diana was killed to protect the military-industrial complex. As we discussed last week, Diana was a beloved activist, and she was most recently a public face for the international campaign to ban landmines. Did her campaign for peace scare those profiting off of landmines so much they wanted to kill her? Lawyer Michael Mansfield claimed it did. During Operation Paget, he said Diana had a diary with a list of names of Brits profiting from the landmines industry that she planned to expose. Mansfield believed the list and Diana's death were, quote, not unrelated. Mansfield, a self-described radical lawyer, had made a career out of defending underdogs in high-profile cases and has been awarded the title Queen's Counsel a prestigious honor bestowed on some of England's best and most experienced lawyers. However, Mansfield's supposed list of names was never produced. Conspiracy theorists would say it was confiscated by the people who killed her, but it's also possible it never existed. Looking beyond that list, there's certainly motivation to the military-industrial complex theory. In 1996, the global arms trade volume was 42.7 billion U.S. dollars. There's vast amounts of money to be made through weapons production and war, and anyone who fights for peace threatens the profits of massive corporations like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman. Any conspiracy theorist worth their salt will assure you that corporations have no problem committing atrocities to protect business interests. And when your job is to engineer weapons or strategize military tactics, you'll have no trouble taking care of a person deemed dangerous, especially when it's not just a corporation, but someone at the top, like the people on Diana's alleged list. Is that what happened here? Well, though he's clearly a brilliant and qualified mind, Mansfield wasn't just a lawyer, he was one of Mohammed Al-Fayed's lawyers. Oh, 
As credible as he is, he was being paid to prove that Diana and Dodie died as a result of foul play. We can't disprove this theory, but that does lessen its weight. It does. And secondly, this theory doesn't outline a scenario explaining how this happened or propose which individual people are responsible. As far as believability goes, I'd give it a 4 out of 10. The motivation is there, but all it is is motivation. I think our next conspiracy theory is much more plausible. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, let's continue our story. Time for conspiracy theory number two, which is the main theory proposed by Mohammed Al-Fayed and his team of super lawyers, and the one he insists on to this day. Theory number two. Dodi Fayed and Princess Diana were killed by MI6 on orders of Prince Philip. That's Queen Elizabeth's husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, and Prince Charles' father. There are many iterations of this theory, so we're only going to go through the most convincing and intriguing ones. It would take hours to cover all of them. But they all put the blame on Prince Philip and MI6. It's interesting that Mohammed landed on Prince Philip as the mastermind and not Charles or the Queen herself. Right. The Queen's in charge and Charles was most closely connected to Diana. If you look at the family through the lens of the time, it makes a little more sense. The general public viewed Charles as ineffectual, but Philip is known for being direct and taking action. When Charles and Diana started dating, Philip told his son to not waste time, just propose or break it off. When they were feuding, Philip told both of them to stop the affairs, stop fighting, and look at the other's perspective. He consistently pushed his son to take action and intervened when necessary. So what was going on here? Was ordering Diana's death an intervention? According to Muhammad Al-Fayed, yes. In the inquest, he stated, quote, Princess Diana told me before and during the holiday we shared in July 1997 of her fears. She told me that she knew Prince Philip and Prince Charles were trying to get rid of her. Prince Philip would not accept my son or anyone who is a person of different religion, naturally tanned, curly hair. 
they would not accept that he would have anything to do with the future king. Prince Philip rules the country behind the scenes. I think Prince Philip is the actual head of the royal family. He is a racist. He was brought up by his aunt who married one of Hitler's generals. This is the man who is in charge, who is manipulating and can do anything. It's time to send him back to Germany from where he comes. You want to know his original name? It ends in Frankenstein. The name he referred to wasn't literally Frankenstein, but Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glücksburg, a Danish and German royal house. Mohammed was perhaps being a little dramatic here. He felt he'd been wronged and he was making a point. Here's how the conspiracy went down, according to the Fayed contingent. Sometime during one of their Mediterranean cruises, Diana became pregnant. Dodie, madly in love with Diana, excited to be a father and ready to finally settle down at the age of 42, proposed. Due to Diana's fame, they had to handle the media carefully. Diana's sons had met Dodie, they'd all vacationed together, but the public needed an opening to their narrative. Remember, everyone was keeping up with her. Diana tipped off the paparazzi on the location of the Jeannical yacht, and infamous photos dubbed The Kiss splashed across every tabloid on August 10th, 1997. While we can't confirm Diana's motivations here, those photos are verified. On August 20th, they looked for a ring at Raposi Jewelers in Monte Carlo and picked one from the Tell Me Yes collection. It was a gorgeous ring with four huge diamonds shaped like the North Star surrounded by tiny pave diamonds. It was clearly meant to compete with Diana's last engagement ring. That's the oversized sapphire most recently seen on her daughter-in-law, Duchess Kate's hand. But Raposi didn't have a ring in Diana's size, so the couple opted to have it altered and pick up the ring that would fit perfectly on Diana's finger from Raposi's other shop in Paris. On August 30th, they arrived in Paris in line with the official version we covered last week. But Mohammed Al-Fayed claims that around 11 p.m. that night, about an hour before the crash, he received a call from Dodie and Diana. They had great news. They were engaged and expecting. Muhammad was thrilled. A wife and child were what he'd always wanted for his beloved son. The couple asked Muhammad to keep it secret since Diana wanted to tell her children before they announced it to the public. He believed that Diana's announcement, the one she told reporters to prepare for, was that she was engaged and pregnant. No one was supposed to know yet. But Muhammad believes that MI6 and the royal family found out about the pregnancy. They could have learned from a variety of spy methods, but were apt to believe it was wiretapping. It's squidgy gate all over again. And with much worse consequences. If people had been able to pick up and record Diana's phone conversation in the past, well, there's no reason that one of the world's top spy agencies couldn't have been listening in on Diana and Dodie's call with Mohammed and learned of the royal pregnancy. Or perhaps they eavesdropped on their conversations aboard the Jonicle, many of which would have revolved around plans for a wedding and a baby. And if the royal family didn't want Diana to be with a dark-skinned Muslim man, as Diana allegedly told Muhammad al-Fayed, then imagine their ire at discovering the future king would have a dark-skinned Muslim half-sibling and stepfather. The influence Dodie and Dodie's child would have on young princes William and Harry would have, according to Muhammad, been viewed as a national security threat. 
Diana and her unborn baby had to be killed before anyone got wind of her news. At some point between Diana discovering she was pregnant and Diana dying in a car crash, MI6 told Prince Philip about the baby. Prince Philip ordered a hit. Prime Minister Tony Blair approved the order. MI6 got to work, but it had to look natural. And the most natural look for Princess Diana was when she was surrounded by photojournalists. MI6 knew that Diana would be followed by paparazzi wherever she went, and the spy agency could pin the blame on them. When Diana and Dodie left the Ritz on August 30th, MI6 put their plan in action. As Henri Paul drove them through the Pondalama Tunnel, a white Fiat Uno carrying a man and a dog bumped into the Mercedes. Seconds later, an MI6 agent on a motorcycle flashed a strobe light into Henri Paul's face. The combination of the bump and the flash caused the crash, killing both Diana and Dodie. What about Henri Paul's driving? In this version of events, Henri was sober, and French pathologists switched Henri Paul's blood samples in the lab. Henri Paul's parents were part of the Al-Fayed legal contingent and, like any parents, wanted any story that didn't involve their son being responsible for three deaths, including his own, to be the truth. Okay. But if the royal family was so Islamophobic, why didn't they interfere in Diana's two-year relationship with Muslim doctor Hasnat Khan? That is an excellent question. Perhaps Hasnat Khan had an inkling of the dangers associated with Diana, and that's why he wouldn't marry her, even though many accounts say he was the love of Diana's life. It can also be explained by this other version of this theory. MI6 didn't have a specific plan for August 30th, but had been waiting for a good opportunity to kill Diana and make it look accidental. That lines up with the letter Diana wrote Paul Burrell and Mohammed Al-Fayed's account of Diana's fears. Yes, basically what started as an accident was manipulated into murder. That version of the theory goes like this. A drunk driver, wild paparazzi, high speed, no seatbelts, a horrible accident. But here's where it diverges from the official story. Around 12.30 p.m., it appears she isn't horribly injured because she isn't horribly injured. Getting word of the situation from MI6, Prince Philip immediately orders MI6 to interfere, kill Diana, and make it appear that she died from her injuries. MI6 agents delay the trip to the hospital and dose Diana with potentially harmful hypnovel and fentanyl, and maybe even something else, too. This would explain the odd timeline in the official version of events, where Diana remains in the tunnel for over an hour, not leaving until 1.41 a.m. Yes, and also why it took 25 minutes to take her to the hospital when it should have taken less than 15. Amid these delays, MI6 somehow convinced the paparazzi, the French rescue workers and the French doctors, either one, not to save Diana's life, two, to keep their mouths shut about this, or three, that she was beyond saving and really did die as a result of the accident. That's a lot of work and a lot of people who had to keep quiet. Exactly. It gets me thinking. Is there any hard evidence MI6 was even involved? Or do you think Mohammed Al-Fayed may have seen a few too many James Bond movies? 
During the Operation Paget Inquest in 2007 and 2008, Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of intelligence at MI6, denied any involvement, as did a manager at MI6 identified as only Miss X. Miss X claimed there was, quote, absolutely no plan whatsoever regarding Diana or Dodie, and MI6 didn't even keep files on them. They did, however, keep a file on thorn in their side, Mohammed Al-Fayed. But some Operation Paget testimonies provide evidence that MI6 was very involved. Around the end of Operation Paget in 2008, new evidence about the MI6 involvement came to light. Former MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson testified that he'd seen Henri Paul's file while he worked for MI6 and said that Paul was an informant. And if he was an informant for MI6? MI6 had eyes on Diana from the moment she left the Ritz until the moment of the crash. In fact, one version of the MI6 theory says Henri Paul was a paid accomplice in the assassination. In the words of Mohammed Al-Fayed, he was, quote, duped into thinking he'd survive the event. Here's how that supposedly happened. After he got off his shift at about 7 p.m. on August 30th, Henri Paul went to meet up with MI6 agents. Henri had been working with MI6 for over 10 years. Typically, he merely provided them with information he gleaned from the high-profile international guests staying at the Paris Ritz. But this time, the agents asked him for something more. There would be more money in it, of course. MI6 would make sure Dodie and Diana had dinner at the Paris Ritz. Agents posing as paparazzi would force them to hide there. Then Henri would convince silly, incompetent, rich boy Dodi Fayed that when he left the Paris Ritz, he should leave in a lightweight, unprotected Mercedes with just one bodyguard. Henri would help Dodi set up a decoy car, the larger, less destructible one, filled with all of their bodyguards. Then Henri would take an indirect route back towards Dodi's apartment via the Pont de Lama tunnel. But Henri had to make sure Dodi thought the entire plan was his idea. That was very important. That was all he had to do. Get them in the car, take them through the tunnel, and ensure Dodi told everyone it was his idea. MI6 agents posing as paparazzi would cover everything else. Of course, Henri would need to keep them updated on the situation, providing signals when he was nearly ready to leave the Ritz. Later, driving along the Seine after midnight, Henri thought the plan had gone off without a hitch. The manager had almost stopped him, reminding Henri that it wasn't his job to drive, but Henri brushed him off easily. It was going so well, he drove a bit faster. The, quote, paparazzi tailed him closely, so he sped up as they entered the Pont de Lama tunnel. A bad idea. He clipped a white Fiat Uno as they entered. He was trained in defensive driving, but he wasn't prepared for the bright light that flashed in his face as he tried to correct his course from the bump with a Fiat. He lost control of the car, and it hit a pillar. That was the end of Henri Paul's work with MI6. Okay. Let's look at the evidence that backs up this version of the theory. There are about three hours that evening, from approximately 7 to 10 p.m., where Henri Paul was off duty and his whereabouts are unknown. And Richard Tomlinson, the former MI6 agent who claims Henri Paul was involved, 
stated that an unnamed MI6 agent, who happened to be the former secretary to the chief of MI6 and thus privy to even the most confidential operations, had been stationed in Paris that August. Also, according to Lord Jay, British ambassador to Paris at the time, there was an MI6 team in Paris staying at the embassy on August 30th. So MI6 was active in the area. Perhaps during this three-hour window, Henri Paul interfaced with them. We can only speculate, but Paul, an unmarried security officer, apparently had over $420,000 in modern American dollars between 15 different bank accounts, as well as almost 3,000 modern American dollars on his person, according to the Al-Fayed team. They believed this money came from MI6 payouts, since Paul was reported to make only $35,000 a year. Henri's parents contested that Henri had this kind of money, claiming he'd recently asked them for a loan. But they also contested the evidence that Henri was drunk that night, as the official version claims he was. Well, they had good reason to. In the blood samples that showed a 0.175% blood alcohol level, which the French authorities used to prove Henri was drunk when he drove Diana, the carbon monoxide level was at 20.7%. That level of carbon monoxide poisoning would have caused dizziness, confusion, and even headaches, all of which would have made Paul unqualified to drive and more likely to crash the car all of which also present as symptoms of drinking too much alcohol. Could he have been poisoned by MI6 after the fact to avoid an information leak? Or poisoned before he entered the car in order to cause the crash? But leading up to the fatal drive, no one observed any of these symptoms or any symptoms that could be construed as drunkenness. This leads many theorists to believe that Paul's blood samples were switched and he was framed. Drunk or not, there were other signs Henri Paul may have been involved in unsavory activity. Security footage from Rue Carbone, the street behind the Ritz, showed Paul waving to the paparazzi seven minutes before Diana left the hotel and entered the Rue Carbone herself. It's reported that Paul had some sort of contact with the paparazzi on five separate occasions throughout the hour before Diana left. And Richard Tomlinson testified that at least one member of the paparazzi that night was a part-time MI6 agent. So is this evidence of a plot? Or was Henri Paul just doing his job as head of security, making sure the rich and famous patrons of the hotel were safe from unwanted photography and that the paparazzi stayed a reasonable distance from the windows? Hmm. Well, what wasn't part of his job was driving guests. And he insisted on driving the getaway car that night. True. Shortly before the Mercedes left the Ritz, the security manager told Paul it wasn't his job to drive. They had drivers. But Paul allegedly ignored him and drove anyways. Henri Paul had a clear out, but he chose not to take it. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now... Back to conspiracy theories. In addition to the allegation against Henri Paul, Tomlinson's testimony included further evidence that MI6 was involved. Tomlinson claimed that in 1992, while employed at MI6, he worked on operations in Serbia. He'd been privy to plans to assassinate the socialist Serbian president, Slobodan Milosevic. According to Tomlinson, MI6 had three different proposed assassination scenarios. Here's the third scenario, taken from Tomlinson's sworn affidavit. 
quote, Milosevic could be assassinated by causing his personal limousine to crash, a proposed, to arrange the crash in a tunnel, because the proximity of concrete close to the road would ensure that the crash would be sufficiently violent to cause death or serious injury and would also reduce the possibility that there might be independent casual witnesses, a suggested, that one way to cause the crash might be to disorientate the chauffeur using a strobe flash gun, a device which is occasionally deployed by special forces to, for example, disorientate helicopter pilots or terrorists, and about which MI6 officers are briefed about during their training. A strobe flash gun? That's less lethal than it sounds. It's essentially a handheld fancy bright light that flashes incredibly quickly. Some are used defensively to disorient people. Others are used by photographers to sync up light flashes with their rapid camera clicks. During the Operation Paget inquest, former MI6 chief Sir Dearlove confirmed that this plan to assassinate President Milosevic had been considered but rejected. So Tomlinson believed they recycled the plan for Princess Diana. The most interesting part of the strobe light plan is that it matches the testimony of two witnesses from the night. Though officially, there was no flash or strobe light. But let's look at those witness accounts. Two men recounted their experiences in the Pont de l'Alma tunnel that night, Francois Lavistre and Brian Anderson. At about 12.22 a.m. on August 31st, witness Brian Anderson rode through the Pont de l'Alma tunnel in a taxi. He noticed four motorbikes, quote, cluster in a swarm around the Mercedes, end quote. Suddenly, Anderson saw a, quote, significant flash of light, followed by a very loud bang. Seconds later, the Mercedes S280 carrying Princess Diana crashed. At the same time, Levistra, driving with his wife, entered the tunnel, followed by the Mercedes. A motorcycle sped up behind them, passing the Mercedes. A flash lit up the tunnel, quote, like the light from a police speed camera. The car crashed, the motorcyclist stopped, and one of them made a, quote, mission accomplished gesture. However, Levistra was later confirmed to be a pathological liar when he gave conflicting witness statements. Levistra's wife, who was right next to him, had no recollection of a flash before the crash. Sir Dearlove, speaking for MI6, denied any association with a flash or a crash. They deemed Tomlinson a conspiracy theorist and a liar. But just to put it out there, isn't that exactly what MI6 would do if they had assassinated Diana? Yes. But for reference, Tomlinson's relationship with his former employer was complicated. Tomlinson was dismissed from MI6 in 1995 and briefly jailed in 1997 after attempting to get a book about his experiences working for MI6 published. MI6 believed this book would expose national secrets. If Tomlinson had already experienced the punishment for sharing MI6 secrets, what did he have to lose? Why not expose what he believed to be the truth? This almost makes him more believable. But he also had a negative relationship with MI6 and a clear desire for a book deal. So in his 2008 testimony for Operation Paget, either one, Tomlinson was a real whistleblower hoping to expose necessary info to the public, two, Tomlinson sought to sabotage his former employer, whom he was angry with, or three, 
Tomlinson was just trying to parlay his time in MI6 into a book deal and capitalizing on public interest. Right. It comes down to Tomlinson's words versus MI6's. And it appears neither of them are trustworthy. Two things that keep coming back to in this theory, the paparazzi and the white Fiat Uno. Officially, the paparazzi were cleared and the Uno was never found. But in one variation of the MI6 killed Diana theory, the Fiat was never officially found because MI6 covered it up and killed its driver. In the week leading up to Diana's death, she was photographed by journalist James Andenson, a Frenchman. Andenson was one of these media contacts Diana gave tips to. During the initial investigation, he claimed Diana gave him permission and means to photograph her for half an hour every day on her vacation with Doty in Saint-Tropez that July, so long as she was left alone for the rest of the day. The agreement gave Diana more control over her image and made Andenson rich. We do know for a fact that Andenson's team sold the tabloids many high-quality photos of this trip. When questioned in 1998, Andenson claimed that once Diana went to Paris, he returned home to Liniere, France, 150 miles away. He was pleased with the exclusive shots he got and had a been-there-done-that attitude about photographing Diana in Paris. But in this variation of the MI6 conspiracy theory, Andenson lied to the French authorities. On August 30th, he followed Diana to Paris without telling the rest of his team. He was eager for more photos of the princess. For some reason, he took his Labrador with him. After midnight on August 31st, he followed the Mercedes within the horde of reporters eager to capture Diana's sparkling life. He drove his white Fiat Uno with his dog next to him. His dog was wearing a red bandana. As he picked up speed going downhill into the tunnel, Andenson got just a little too close to the Mercedes S280, bumping it. Seconds later, the Mercedes crashed. His vicinity to the crash afforded him the best angles, and allegedly, Andenson snapped incredible and shocking photos of Diana's death. He never stated what specifically he photographed, but apparently it was damning evidence that MI6 was involved. Realizing his work was done, Andenson managed to slip away without being noticed by the MI6 agents on the scene or the police, avoiding having to turn over his film as evidence, which the other paparazzi were forced to do. Hearing the news Diana had died the next day and that the paparazzi were suspects, Andenson laid low. He was upset, feeling guilty. He'd like Diana. Was he partly responsible for her death? He hoped not. That October, he sold the 10-year-old white Fiat Uno, which had recently been repainted at a garage in Chateauroux. The police confirmed this and inspected the car during the initial investigation. By selling the car, Andenson was hoping it wouldn't be traced to him. But in February 1998, the authorities tracked him down. Andenson lied to French Commandant Moulet, hoping he wouldn't be implicated. Andenson told the Commandant he wasn't in Paris at the time. He claimed to be at home in Liniere that night, and then to have left at 4 a.m. to drive to Orly Airport, and flew to Corsica on an assignment. He was able to produce the plane ticket and some receipts from that morning. His wife later confirmed this, but his son didn't. Andenson's son said his father wasn't home that night. 
In 2000, once the paparazzi were no longer suspect in Diana's death, Andenson was finally ready to reveal the crash photos, but looking for the right buyer, he claimed to his friends they were explosive. However, according to this theory, the alleged photos contained evidence of MI6 involvement, and somehow MI6 got wind of it. They couldn't have these photos released to the public, or worse, to Muhammad al-Fayed. In a universe where MI6 killed three people, including a beloved famous Brit, well, what's one dead Frenchman to keep the secret safe? So MI6 agents tracked down Andenson. They forced him to write a suicide note of sorts addressed to his boss. The note received by the head of SEPA photo agency read, quote, From this date on, pay my photo rights directly to my wife. Then they killed James Andenson shooting him in the head and leaving him in a burning car in the woods. That's the incident we covered in the teaser, which was officially determined to be a suicide. But was it a suicide or was it a hit? There's a variation of this theory where Andenson was working for MI6 and paid to bump his car into Diana's, but the evidence there is very thin. It's much more likely he snapped damning photos of MI6 agents at the scene, but it's all just a theory. One last fact. When Andenson's wife was questioned, she confirmed that they had a large dog and that the dog had a red bandana. In court, all of Mohammed Al-Fayed's MI6 did it theories were taken down by the fact that they were just too complex. Too many people and factors had to come together just right to kill Diana and Dodie and cover it up. The British authorities were convinced Diana's death was an accident, but they had a different worldview than Mohammed Al-Fayed did. Looking at the events through Egyptian culture, Diana put herself in danger. Egyptian news publicized Diana's death as a murder from the start. In the Muslim world, women aren't allowed to marry outside their faith, so if Diana got engaged to Dodi Fayed, she was truly crossing a line. To them, white, Anglican Diana's death was the logical outcome once she dated a Muslim man. But the royal family and MI6 came from a different worldview, where Diana's marriage to a Muslim man would have been frowned upon, but not worth the trouble of an elaborate murder conspiracy. Mohammed Al-Fayed remains convinced that his son and the princess were murdered. He refuses to believe anything else, so insistent that even one of his own lawyers, George Kijman, quit on him. Most recently, Mohammed Al-Fayed financed a documentary about the events of August 30th and 31st titled Unlawful Killing. The film premiered at Cannes in 2011, but due to its content, it was unable to secure insurance to exhibit the film in the UK or US. The legal team recommended 87 cuts to avoid being sued, but Mohammed refused to make them, still strong in his convictions about Prince Philip, MI6, and the death of Princess Diana. So, does this theory hold up? I side with the court on this one. While one set of events would be plausible, there are too many variables proposed. With all these theories and versions of theories, Al-Fayed and his team, while thorough, were throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what stuck. I agree, it's too broad to be true. The only thing that trips me up is James Andenson. The details of his story and his suspicious death really make me second-guess the official story. We'll call this a 7 out of 10 for believability. 
I almost want to side with Mohammed Al-Fayed here, but we need just a little more evidence. Going through this theory, you really feel for Mohammed. His son was tragically torn from him, and his pain only exacerbated by the fact that it will always be a side note in someone else's story. It's true. On a deeper level, one reason Mohammed Al-Fayed might push these conspiracy theories is that he needs to clear his own name. Like we discussed last week, Diana and Dodi died traveling between Al-Fayed properties in an Al-Fayed car driven by an Al-Fayed employee. If Mohammed could blame anyone else for his son's death, he wouldn't have to blame himself. Our last theory is the most optimistic. Theory number three, Diana chose to disappear. It's clear Diana's life was crazy, and there was only one escape from constant attention and public scrutiny, death. So what if Diana faked her own death? The car crash was just a show, and Diana and Dodie, after some plastic surgery, are living happily on a private island, or perhaps in a chalet in the Swiss Alps, a favorite ski destination for the royal family. Mohammed Al-Fayed puts on a big show about conspiracy theories to deter everyone from discovering the real answer. And William and Harry, who of course would be in on it, keep their mother's secret out of love. On her last vacation with Dodie, Diana spoke to Richard Kay, one of her reporter contacts who worked for the Daily Mail. Kay recounted that Diana told him she had decided to radically change her life. She was going to complete her obligations to her charities and then, around November, would completely withdraw from her formal public life. What if this radical change was even more radical than Kay had believed? This theory also explains why guests at the Ritz reported Diana crying at dinner that night. Yes, anyone who planned to dramatically change everything they knew and leave everyone they loved would cry at least a little. And she was struggling with her mental health. Maybe it was even prescribed by a psychologist. After 16 years in an unending spotlight, the most photographed woman in the world deserved a break. We like this theory the best, simply because it's the most optimistic, even though it's the least believable. I'd give it a 2 out of 10. Unfortunately, there's very little evidence of this theory. In 20 years, someone would have tracked Diana down or slipped up on the secret. It's pure wishful thinking. Imagining Princess Diana with the happiness she deserved. With the conclusion of our main theories, we have one more wild card to throw out there before we tell you which we think is the most likely version of events. Right. Conspiracy theories are known for taking bizarre turns, and we can't properly cover them without mentioning some of the more eccentric ones. The wild card theory? Diana's death had nothing to do with her, and the accident was planned by enemies of the Fayeds, who were targeting Dodi. Diana's death was just a byproduct of another assassination, much like how Archduke Franz Ferdinand's wife died because she was next to him when he was assassinated. There's not strong evidence to back this theory up. But it is all over the internet. It's worth mentioning because people talk about it. And a huge factor in conspiracy theories isn't logic, but what people want to believe. This one might not be very well-founded, but it's not impossible. The Fayeds were one percenters, so we can't say no one was jealous of them or had been pushed down on their rise to the top. 
If we learned one thing from investigating the MI6 theory, it's that Mohammed Al-Fayed had quite the personality and certainly rubbed some people the wrong way. There's no way this family didn't have a couple of enemies. The strongest piece of evidence? In 1997, Dodi Fayyad employed two bodyguards. Princess Diana employed none. It's entertaining to consider that everyone's been looking at the wrong target the whole time. But if that's the case, who's to say they weren't killed by enemies of Henri Paul or of Trevor Reese Jones? Mm, fair point. Okay, time for our verdict. After much research and thought, we believe Diana died as the result of a tragic car accident. She may have aggravated the royal family to no end, but they weren't going to have her killed. And if they wanted that, it would have happened long before 1997. There were too many other people working on the anti-landmine campaign to justify killing just one spokeswoman, and faking her own death would have been just too much trouble when Diana hadn't even taken a step back from royal duties yet. After six collective years of investigation between the initial inquiry and Operation Paget, if there was one strong logical conspiracy theory that stood out above the rest, it would have risen to the top. Over 20 years later, we're still puzzling over an abundance of theories and wondering what if. The persistence of these conspiracy theories tells us just one thing. No matter how she died, society is not ready to forget Princess Diana. She remains, in a sense, alive. A bittersweet undertone in the lives of her sons, inspiring empathy for the latest in a line of cold, calculated rulers, and impacting the royals' public image from the grave. And in that way, her legacy will always live. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. I know it seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is. Join us next week as we explore another conspiracy theory. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.